we are starting a new series called The God of Jacob, um, and we've been mostly working through sections of Scripture in the New Testament for the first couple months of church. We did the book of James all the way through. We like to you, uh, do big sections of Scripture and work through verse by verse and really not skip over a whole lot, allow the Bible to speak for itself, not allow the pastor to bring his own pet uh, stuff to talk about, but to let the Bible really speak to us. And so we're going back to the book of Genesis. And I don't know if, uh, if everyone in here, I don't want to assume, is someone who uh, is a Bible scholar or has read the Bible a, a lot in their life. And so I just want to stop and kind of talk a little bit about the Old Testament and kind of the idea when we study the Old Testament, really what's going on when we do that? And what is the point of having the Old and New Testament in our in our Bible, it's, it's something I think that we sometimes can fall in love with the second half of the story where we get kind of, in, you know, uh, get away in through Jesus. But then we miss the idea that the first half of the story is just as important. It's God's plan all the way through. It's his divinely inspired word all the way through. And this is actually all about Jesus. Uh, and sometimes we don't necessarily think that. We read the Old Testament like it's a bunch of... Um, uh, like it's designed to help us to be moral and to learn lessons from people, but we miss the idea that actually God's whole plan is active through the whole thing and that it's all about Jesus from beginning to end, that we can see Jesus in the Old Testament. So whenever we're studying scripture, we should be looking for Christ in the Old Testament. We should be asking what we learn about God in this passage that we're looking at, and then we should be asking what, how does this apply to our lives, to our church, and to the world that we live in. It's definitely a different world than it was when this Genesis uh, came on the scene and was written. And so I want to go quickly to a passage uh, really where Jesus, so just after he, sorry, they told me I'd see that because I have an awesome beard, by the way. This is called beard back. So <laughs> it strikes all of us who have beards. Um, Jesus, right after his death and resurrection, he kind of pieces out, right? Everyone goes to the the tomb, and it's empty, right? Some people go, and they find some linens there, and there's nobody there, and they're wondering, what happened? Where's Jesus? And if you read in Luke, it actually shows them finding the empty tomb, and then cuts away to a story where Jesus joins two people walking on a road the same day that he uh, was resurrected. He's walking with two people on a road to Emmaus. It's, it's a, a pretty significant walk, not something that you can do in, in a few hours, but so he basically joins these two people, but this is like where it gets really cool. Like Jesus is like disguised. I don't know exactly how that looked. This probably wasn't like Mar Mar you know, Marco, Groucho Marx glasses with like a big nose or anything. Like somehow Jesus joins these two people and they don't know it's him, right? So he gets to have a good time kind of talking with them. And, and he uh, asks, what's going on? Like he starts a conversation with them and they're like, dude, where did you come from? Didn't you, didn't you come from... This guy, Jesus, died over the weekend, and then they found this tomb, and they were discussing what does this mean, and where's the body, and we don't know what's going on, and it seems like a crazy situation to be in. And it says Jesus is just disguised. He's listening to them talk. He's kind of, you know, baiting them and kind of talking with them and teaching them, and he says he opens up the scriptures. Here's what it says. So it says, he said to them, how foolish are you? How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? And then enter his glory. He says, look, everything that just happened was already prophesied. You can go find it. Go look. You'll see Jesus in the Old Testament. He'll be 
prophesied about. We knew this was coming. If you were paying attention, you'd be looking at all the pieces that just happened over the last couple days, and you'd be putting them together with what the prophets already told you, with what the Old Testament foretold of, and you'd be aware of the fact that this was all about Jesus. Right? He says, uh, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So beginning with the first five books of the, of the Bible, the Pentateuch, that Moses wrote, sometimes the shorthand was they would call it Moses, and all the prophets, basically the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus opens up, it's like a, it's like a mind blown, like, right? Like Jesus takes the Old Testament, which they would have been incredibly familiar with, and he just starts walking them through how Jesus is in every piece of it all the way from the beginning to the end. Like, hey, remember this verse? Here's, here's me again. He's not telling them who he is. He's like, here's Jesus again, and here's Jesus again, and here he is again, and here he is again. The Old Testament is both the soil that Christ comes out of, so we have to understand where Christ comes out of the soil of Israel and the soil of the covenant that God had with Israel and understanding their situation and what God was doing in them and through them. But it's also sort of like a, um, a foretelling of what Christ was going to be. It's almost like, weirdly, when you read it, you, you hear these, these echoes that are happening where you're like, you see what's really happening, but then you understand that like, beyond that is, is really Christ in all of these situations in the Old Testament. Okay, so Jesus used the Old Testament to enlighten them that this was all about Christ. He says that they, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if, they were going, as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Are you kidding me? That's so awesome. I mean, this is like some sort of sci-fi thing. He was just like, uh, yeah, and this is uh, my body broken for you. You know, here I am. And they're like, what? And then he's just gone. Bread falls on the table. Right? Like, in my mind, this is like an amazing moment. These two guys are just blown away. And then they're like, duh. Right? Like, shouldn't we have seen that this was Christ all along? They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And when we go and study the Old Testament, when we go and study any part of scripture, it's a chance for our hearts to burn inside of us and for us to have truth and knowledge and love and peace and to know God to, through the person of Christ whenever we study scripture to have those things opened up to us through our understanding of God's word. And when we study God's word, we should come away saying our hearts were burning within us. We, we felt the echoes of Christ in what we were studying, and now our eyes are open to see what God is actually doing all around us. And so we're going to be focused on the person of Jacob for the next eight, it's actually about ten weeks, but eight, eight weeks we're going to talk about Jacob, and we're going to have a couple guest speakers in there over the summer. And the goal here is not just to tell you a bunch of uh, stories of the, of the Old Testament, of, the, um, of God's chosen people, and then for us to walk away and go, you know, I can be more moral. Or, hey, I really learned something from that, but it's, a, it's really a, a tale of morality. No, our goal in studying Jacob is to see Christ 
in the Old Testament, in everything we do, we should be looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. And when we study the people that God used, we're going to learn a whole lot of things about God using really, really imperfect people. We say all the time in our church that this is an imperfect church for imperfect people. And let me just tell you, Jacob and his family show you what it looks like to be imperfect people in an imperfect family. You think your family is dysfunctional, you will be challenged to think your family is dysfunctional when this is over. It gets crazy. But the cool thing about Genesis is it's really not about the people. It's really about the faithfulness of God. Right? It's about people who are really messed up. They got issues. They don't have it together. And it's about God being faithful to them. That same offer is made to us still today. We are messed up. We got issues. We bring baggage in with us. This is not, there's no perfect people here. And yet God still is faithful to his promises. And so the first uh, section of Genesis is really about the proliferation of sin. Sin enters the world and enters into the first family. It enters into the people of the world. It creates a situation that's horrible, that's awful. And then it's sort of God creating a group of people that he wants to set apart within the culture of the world. And that's really where we start to see the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, and the story of Jacob. So I'm going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 25, and this is the account of Jacob. It starts here with talking about his father, Isaac. So this is Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he met, when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padam Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. I didn't practice that or anything this week. I'm just being honest with you. So first things first, when we start talking about Jacob, he's not known yet for himself. He comes from a patriarchal system right, where, in other words, he's important not because of who he is, but because of who his father is. And his father's important because of who his father is. Right, Jacob starts by being known for being part of this family. Right? His grandfather was Abraham. Essentially, that's how his story begins. His dad was Isaac, right? These two names, people of faith that God used in crazy ways. Both of them, when you go back and dig into their story, I think sometimes we have this like Sunday school version of the events, and we see the kind of like nice, clean version. But in general, both of these guys had their flaws and issues. And we're going to see Jacob picks up some of the flaws and issues that are present in his family that he receives from the generations that go before him. But honestly, he's already defined by who his grandfather and his father were, not necessarily by who he is. And that's important in their society because it was a patriarchal society. So everything was really about the patriarch, right? And everyone lived in service of the patriarch. And you waited for your chance. If you were a firstborn son, you waited for your chance to take over to become the, the patriarch. Everyone else knew their position would be underneath somebody who would take over the family business, basically, when one patriarch passed on the blessing to the next patriarch, and that one then took over the family. Okay, and so this is the situation that Jacob is born into. He is important because of his grandfather and father. Uh, Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. It says, Isaac, his, Jacob's father, prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? Okay, so we see a couple things here. First, 
the ability to have children is difficult in their family. This is something that we see generationally happening. It's difficult for them to become pregnant. And in fact, uh, they become pregnant in their old age, and God makes uh, promises to them and brings their children to them when they are older. It's happened in their family line before this. And so Isaac, he's learned from his father and grandfather, and he begins praying to God on behalf of his wife when this becomes a problem. He's leaning on God, trying to help his wife become pregnant. And it says, the Lord answered their prayer. And she became pregnant. But nothing in Genesis is easy. Everything is difficult. And so not only did she become pregnant with one, but she became pregnant with babies, it says. Right? So it's not easy. It's not just one. It has to be two to make it more difficult. And basically, they're having like WWE happening within her. She's like, this is not just like a bad Taco Bell thing happening. Like something's messed up here. And what did she do? She went to God and she said, God, what is going on inside of me? Something's weird. These babies aren't like regular babies. They're already beating each other down in the womb. They're already jostling for position. They're already trying to man each other up and get in the right spot, be in the right place and be comfortable and put the other one in the place that they, they're already fighting over who gets to be where and what is their position. This is how God answered her. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. We read that and we just kind of go on by. Like, okay, well, God just chose Jacob. That's cool. That's not cool in patriarchal society. In a patriarchal society, the older gets the double portion of the inheritance, is the one who takes over the family, is the one who basically now cares for everyone who's part of, part of the family. And so in this situation, for God to basically tell Rebecca ahead of time that the younger would serve the older, that would have been something that would have been so out of place in their culture. It doesn't matter if you were better or worse. If you were older, you got the position. And my parents just went uh, to Israel uh, last year, and they called me ahead of time, and they were like, listen, just in case you die while we're in Israel. And I'm like, what? <laughs> who, what who signed you up for this? Like, is, are you safe? Like, <laughs> she was like, here's the name of the lawyer. Here's where the, you know, the, the trust is. Like, by the way, you're the executor of our will. I'm like, really? You had me and my brother to choose from. You chose me? My brother is five years younger than me. He's like a finance whiz. He's like a super successful business guy. 100% he'd be a better executor of any will than I would be. No doubt about it. And I said, why? Why did you choose me? And my dad was like, well, you're the oldest. I was like, this isn't Genesis, bro. (laughs) I trust my brother, and he's smarter than me and better with finances. Trust me, you want him doing this job. Right? So I'll just make him do it, even though I'll have to sign everything. <laughs> Hopefully that won't happen for a very long time. That was a little macabre. Um, the, this would have been so crazy to have the younger serve the older. It would have been out of order. It would have been wrong. It would have been messed up. So to have this promise from God, this, um, you know, for God to tell them ahead of time, hey, the younger is going to be the one who rises up and takes over and controls this situation. He's the one that's going to be in charge of the o- older. It would have been unheard of. It would have been something that would have been way out of whack, right? Something that would have been, really would have surprised them if they took it seriously. And notice that it says, 
Rebecca asked, and God told her. It'll become important later. So it says, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first was, came out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Harry. That's what his name means. For real, they named him Harry. Some of you guys don't like your names. I'm just saying. Uh, Esau, in his senior yearbook, we know when they have like pictures of you when you're a baby and you're trying to figure out who's who. Everybody knew who he was. A red, hairy dude, right? Like this poor fellow. He's just, his parents are so literal. It's unbelievable. It says, after this, his twin brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. In other words, they came out together and Jacob was grabbing hold of Esau on the way out. In other words, don't leave me in here one more minute. I need to get out of this place and get out with my brother. And it says, so he was named Jacob, which means heel grabber or it has this connotation of deception, which we're going to see. And I, w- I want you to know, this is a crazy thing to think about sometimes, but as parents, like, you don't know sometimes the, um, the impact of your words, what you name your kids, what you speak over them. I mean, Jacob was called deceiver from day one, and he lived up to that name. When we, when we speak words over our kids, we don't necessarily realize sometimes how important they become the things that we bring into existence with our words. And, and so they called him deceiver, heel grabber, and it turns out to be that's what he was. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to them. Genesis 25, verse 27 says, The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Right? The, the boys grew up, and they were way different. I mean, you can think about the difference between your siblings in your family or the siblings, your parents' siblings or whatever, my my grandfather's one of 12 in his, and, you know, it's, like, interesting to watch them all together. Like, they're all completely different. They have different jobs. They have different passions in life. They're defined differently, by, but they're brothers and sisters. This is the same thing in anyone's family. There's going to be uh, individuals because God creates us all individually. He gives us different gifts, different passions. He wires us for different things. And so when you're a parent and you have multiple kids your goal is to find out what it is that God has placed in that child, what passion they have, what gift they have, what you love about how God created them. As a parent, your goal is to nurture those things and to bring those things out and to steward the gifts that God has given your children. And in a weird way, I think maybe they thought they were doing something like that. Right? They say Esau became a skillful hunter. He could hunt down the biggest game, and he could bring back the meat. And it says his dad, right, uh, Isaac had a taste for wild game, so he loved Esau. He passed on all his passions and all the things that he was good at, all the things that he loved to his kid because of his own desire to have more wild meat, to see those things in his son, the things that he loved. In a way, that's like self-love. I love these things about myself, and now I'm going to create this in my child. And I'm going to encourage these things, and I'm going to prefer this kid over this other one. And some of you have been in families where mom loved this one the most, and dad loved this one the most. It's a terrible place to be. 
is not what we're called to as parents at all. We are called to, as parents, nurture and develop each kid individually. It's a big family here. We love kids. And so they had a chance to say, you know what, Esau, you got some, some skill. You got more hand-eye coordination. You can, you know, whip that bow around and you can take down the wild game. And you got the stomach to be able to cut that thing open and get all that stuff out. And I'm not a hunter by any means. I'm told it's super fun. I think sitting in like a tree stand for like hours on end and freezing your butt off is really dumb. Like, I would rather go to the store and, like, pick up, do I like this one or this one? I guess I'll have this one, right? Like, that's how I would definitely have been a Jacob. And by the way, we give Jacob a hard time. We say, like, he was a man of the tents, you know, a man of the tents. Like, we, people are like, well, that must mean he must have been, like, sewing and doing crafts and, you know, like, womanly, womanly things. Like, that's not what it means at all. What it means, he probably was more of a herdsman. He was definitely a thinker. He had a, a, a sharp sharpness to the way that he thought and the way that he reasoned in the way that he kind of was able to leverage things against people. He was definitely someone who was very smart and used his intellect to kind of take advantage of other people. And you had Esau, who was kind of like baby Huey, like, hey, man, I'm going to go out there and give me some meat, right? And so these two brothers had, had some conflict, but the parents missed it here. Because as parents, we get the opportunity to see what God's doing in the children that we get to steward and encourage that thing, and to love those kids in different ways based on how they're wired and what their passions are and how they respond to things. As a parent, sometimes you have one kid that you need to yell at, and you have another kid you need to be soft with. You've got one kid you want to encourage to be an artist, one that you want to encourage to be an athlete. Right? You, as a parent, it's a self-love when we start to take the things that we want and to put them on our kids and to see the things that we like in them and prefer them over the others. And it leads to all kinds of problems. We're going to actually spend more time on the generational curses and issues that are going on in this family in a couple of weeks when we get further along in the story. But just know that parents that love one kid more than the other creates havoc in a family and creates generational sin. And creates a situation where, you know, families are pitted against each other. Where we're leaving the story today, we essentially have Rebecca and Jacob in tents. And we've got Esau and Isaac out hunting. And it's going to split the family right down the middle. Now, let me just stop for a second and talk about family and community for a minute. This is not how God wants us to operate. He wants us to be unified, to love each other, to serve each other, to see what, how we're each wired and created, and to encourage those gifts to come out into the community and to come out into the family. And a church is a big family. I had this conversation this week with someone where they were like, well, what's going on at Pursuit? Why is it, you know, feel like there's so much momentum and feel like a lot of people are very interested in being part of it? And I was like, I, I don't really, I can't tell you what we're doing that's different than what we should be doing. It feels like what we're doing is community and mission, and it's so refreshing to people because they're not finding it anywhere else. And people are walking in here, and they're feeling, this is a church. This is what it's supposed to feel like. I'm supposed to be part of a family. I'm supposed to know people. I'm supposed to have people who have my best at heart, who want to see me grow in my faith, who want to give me an opportunity to be involved in the mission of God. 
it's not really that difficult. We're not doing anything that's crazy or new. We're actually just kind of going back to what a church is supposed to be about. This is what a family looks like. We take care of each other. We love each other. We see what God's doing in one another. We encourage one another. When one of us is having a hard time, we pick them up. Right? When one of us is doing really great, we celebrate. When we're feeling at our lowest point, someone is there to be with us. When we're feeling like things are going great, we're able to pick up other people as we walk along the path. That's what a family looks like. And this family is already splitting. I mean, I prayed this week that this would be the kind of church where people would walk in here and feel like this is their home, this is their family, this is the place that people have their back and love them and know them. We're not preferring anybody. We're not trying to create any sort of, like, groups of people. We're all in this together. As we go on, we're going to see what happens to a family when it is split apart, when there is sin involved, when there is factions that happen. And next week, I'm going to challenge the dads to think about their place in the family and to think about the fact that sometimes we give up our place for our appetites as we continue to stay. I'm going to go ahead and pray as we close our time this morning. Jesus, you've called us to be an unbroken, unified family. Not that we would prefer one another. Not that we would play favorites. Not that we would uh, try to manipulate one another to be the way we want each other to be, but that we would love and accept and walk alongside of those that come into this place. Thank you, God, that you did that for us. That even as we wallowed in our sin, as we were separated from God, that you stepped into this world and said, let me show you what it looks like to walk alongside people who are struggling. You went to a cross. You died for our sin so that we could be in relationship with you. I pray, God, this would be the kind of church, the kind of place where the family is whole, is together, where we are for one another, where we encourage the gifts and passions that you place in each of us, God, where we see each one of us flourish in the way that you created us to be. Help us to step into being that family. In Jesus' name, amen.